Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Gamba Chulunku, Managing Director at RVJ Capital, as they journey to the middle of the chessboard to discuss Mongolia's role in the Asia-Pacific region. Gombat dives into Mongolia's history of strategic culture, starting with the legacy of Genghis Khan, and outlines the intricacies of Mongolia's relationships with China, Russia, and third neighbors like the United States. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green from CSIS and Georgetown University. We're going to talk about a country right at the center of the chessboard with a small population but a long history of grand strategy, and that's Mongolia. And to help us understand what's happening in Ulaanbaatar and in Mongolia, vis-a-vis big neighbors like China and Russia and so-called third neighbors like Japan, the US, and Korea, but also to get inside the strategic debates at the heart of geopolitics in the Eurasian landmass. We are joined by a friend of mine, Gambat Chulunku, who is in New York, but is Mongolian by birth, Um, has his MBA and MIA from Colombia, and he's been in international finance and business, has advised Mongolia on transportation, road, construction, and, and, and urban development, but has a very keen sense of the geopolitics that Mongolia faces and the politics within Mongolia, which we'll get to. So, Gambat, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here. So, we always start by uh, how our guests got where they are, Yours may be the most unique story and the hardest to copy, but starting with when you were born in Mongolia, tell us briefly, how did you end up in New York? Uh, how did you end up in the middle of the U.S.-Mongolia relationship? First of all, I'm an active listener of Asia Across Board in Bonnie Glantz's China podcasts, and I'm just absolutely at awe at the quality of questions and quality of the participants that you guys have. Well, I was born in Mongolia, and I grew up in Moscow. At the time, my father basically was appointed to uh, the Comic-Con at the time, sort of the UN of the socialist bloc countries at the time, and came back to Mongolia, went to undergrad, and worked in a cashmere industry for a while, and came to uh, graduate studies in the U.S., and then afterwards ended up in uh, sort of Wall Street. I was with Commerce Bank New York branch in uh, structured commodities and export finance, which sort of led me to Mongolia because some of the core clients of the bank were interested in doing a business in Mongolia and asked for a banking support there. And of course, sitting in New York, we were responsible for the export finance, dealing a lot with US Exim. And ever since President Bush's uh, visit to Mongolia, soon after, US Exim Bank opened coverage for Mongolia, which enabled banks like us to provide loan financing. And of course, to a similar extent, there were also some of the European clients of the bank that were interested in doing business and were asking the bank support. And naturally, at the time, I was the only Mongolian in the bank, and they reached out to me to help with the coverage there. Long story short, uh, there were many trips to Mongolia for the bank. And uh, now President Batuga had asked me to come back to Mongolia and help with the infrastructure and industrial uh, development projects in Mongolia. He 
had a vision for Mongolia. And given my experience working in different uh, countries, doing the financing in Latin America and the Russia and mostly research-rich countries, I sort of was taken also by his vision and uh, how he wants to develop and went back to Mongolia. So your English, your English is, of course, better than mine, uh, and your Mongolian is definitely better than mine. You speak Russian as well growing up there? I do, I do. And so does President Patuga, and so do many Mongolians over the age of 30 or 40, right? Yeah, I think uh, my generation, I guess in the 40s, uh, probably is the last generation to speak Russian. And of course, in the previous uh, generations, Russian was sort of necessary language in order for career advancement. And if one was educated in Russia and the understanding was greatly benefit. So my first trip to Mongolia was when I was a student in Japan in 1985. And the yen appreciated my last few months there. So I took all my cash winnings from my bank account with a friend and we bought a ticket on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. We went from Beijing to Paris eventually, but spent a lot of time going through Mongolia. And in those days... Of course, it was completely under Soviet domination. When you looked out the train window, you saw Soviet soldiers, tanks, artillery, MiGs, everywhere. When you got to UB, to Ulaanbaatar, you couldn't leave the train station. And my American friend, who had been a friend since college, was a football player, big guy. We were walking through the UB train station, and these young Soviet recruits saw these obvious, obviously American guys. And they came up, and they bumped into us, just looking for a fight. It was fascinating. I went back to Mongolia again myself in November 2005 with President Bush. And I think I can claim credit for being the one who suggested that President Bush go to Mongolia, which at the time, of course, when we when the president in his second inaugural was talking about democracy and freedom, had another long trip to Asia for APEC in Korea that year. We were trying to do something different. So I said, sir, you should, I got permission from Condoleezza Rice and Steve Hadley and my bosses to propose it. You should go to Mongolia. And he was intrigued, but a lot of people were skeptical, to be honest. And he had a meeting with the Dalai Lama. I think it was the next week. And he said to his holiness, you know, Green thinks I should go to Mongolia. What do you think? And his holiness, you've heard me tell the story, God, but his holiness said, you must go to Mongolia. It's a wonderful country. He said, Mongolians, sometimes I think they're better Buddhists than anyone in the world. And so President Bush had a wonderful trip. And then I went back again last uh, summer, spent a lot of time there, as you know. One of the things President Bush found so fascinating about Mongolia was when we went to Ulaanbaatar and he had his summit meeting with, I think at the time, it was with President Enkbayar in the Gare, in the yurt, in the giant tent where heads of state have their meetings. And in between the president's seat and President Enkbayar's seat was a huge alabaster statue of Genghis Khan. And President Bush turned around and looked at it and he said, Genghis Khan, he had an interesting foreign policy, a little bit sarcastically. And then President Enkbayar proceeded to give a, a lecture on Genghis Khan's foreign policy, free trade, freedom of religion. That's how you build an empire. And, and I tell that story in part because I want to start, Gambat, with you telling us a little bit about the strategic, that for a small country with a population in the millions, Mongolia has a very long, very impressive history of strategic culture and big, big thinking. And tell us a little bit about the Genghis Khan culture and the Mongolian strategic culture, which came back after the Soviet era, right? Became part of the national identity. Definitely. Uh, Mongolia has a heritage, of course, you know, there are two um, heritage items. One is, of course, the Genghis Khan legacy and Genghis Khan history. And the second one is, you rightfully had uh, also mentioned, it's the Buddhism. 
which basically Buddhism had become sort of the symbol of Mongolian sovereignty too, going back to 1911, early 1900s. And it's right, uh, Chinggis Khan uh, had a very big uh, strategic thinking. He's the one that was able to unite the Mongolian tribes at the time and conquer half the world. And in doing so, of course, you know, he was seeking for happiness for its people. And the foreign policy that you explained, in a sense, it was sort of benevolent. Before conquering a nation, uh, of course, you know, they would send a messenger and basically ask to submit. If not, then it was uh, conquered. But the Buddhist part of it is quite significant in a sense that not only there is a very close connection with Tibetan Buddhism, which started from the 1500s, when the uh, Mongolian Empire at the time had conquered the Tibetan Plateau and uh, they were looking to what are the ways to conquer the hearts and minds of Tibetans. And they found that uh, maybe it was religion. And Dalai Lama is really a Mongolian name that was given by Altan Han in 1500s. And back then it was Sonam Getso. He also had given a title to Altan Han. And since then, the Mongolian Buddhism and the Tibetan Buddhism have very strong relationship with many of the famous Mongolian scholars in the Dharma teaching there. So taking a step back, nowadays, I sort of see uh, Mongolia as Great Game 2.0. The Great Game 1, of course, was over the Tibetan Plateau between the Russians, the Chinese, and the Brits, right? And the Tibetan Plateau was a, such a strategic position in the mountains that could basically control the surroundings. In a similar sense, Mongolia is sort of becoming like that. And in one way, uh, as you also mentioned, that uh, back in the 80s, uh, there were so many Russian soldiers. There was a Russian base in Mongolia. There was uh, Russian consultants working in different areas. And in a way, Russia was really positioning Mongolia because of its size and because of its small population to develop Mongolia as one of the examples of the socialist development that they could bring an example of Mongolia and show to the other sort of swing markets or swing countries at, uh, at those times in terms of ideology that look at how Mongolia is developing. And in a similar way, even during the transition times, I think Mongolia has probably had that kind of approach too when uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs and all of the other consultants at the time advising the transition governments back in the early 90s. And Mongolia was also a perfect uh, sort of country to do the testing for the transition economies and implement in other uh, larger economies. And now Mongolia, again, is in a very strategic place. But given, of course, the Chinese foreign policy stance, Mongolia uh, is viewed... Let me just uh, take you back to the history. Back in February 1989, there was a meeting between uh, President George H.W. Bush and Chairman Deng. And Chairman Deng really made the case that Mongolia was really a part of uh, China uh, because of the politics, foreign policy during the Stalin time was Mongolia was stolen from the Chinese. And as early as 1989, uh, this is sort of also significant uh, given the what's going on uh, around the rest of the periphery in China with South China Sea. And uh, there is definitely sort of a feeling in Mongolia whether we would become the next Tibet or whether we would become the next Inner Mongolia or, or Xinjiang. So Chinese scholars claim Mongolia was part of China. Russian scholars claim Mongolia was part of the Soviet empire's sphere of influence. 
Mongolian scholars retort, no, both China and Russia were part of Genghis Khan's empire. Thank you very much. I want to turn to Russia. I was in Mongolia in the year 2019, which was a time of celebration of what I always call Nomonhan, because I'm a Japan expert, the battle in 1939 between Soviet and Mongolian forces and Japanese coming out of Manchuria. Khalkingol, uh, I think it's called in Mongolia. And I was quite surprised to see the affinity, the nostalgia and affection for Soviet-era relations. My son got a, uh, a Soviet forage cap and a T-shirt. They were selling things in the streets. And there's a lot more affinity for Russia in Mongolia than there is anywhere else in Asia, that's for sure. And I suspect part of it is because of concern about China. Some people I talked to last summer in UB were very worried that Russia was losing its focus on Mongolia, that Russia was making too many concessions to China. But now, you know, it looks like trade is up between Russia and Mongolia. You know, for Americans looking at this, a good relationship between Russia and Mongolia seems like a bad idea for U.S. interests. But it's actually a very good idea for Mongolian interests, given the giant neighbor of the South. Where are things with Russia right now for Mongolia? The public opinion uh, right now, uh, there is a Sant Moral polling from last, I think it was in May, and uh, over 70% of the respondents to the polling said that the best partner to Mongolia was Russia. And uh, there is definitely a sort of a nostalgia during the Russian times. And you're exactly right that this might be in response to general population feeling that maybe the country is skewing more to China where we have a sort of assimilation risk. And in Russia, certainly there is no such risk. The uh, Mongolians really have gotten the sovereignty because of Stalin uh, negotiating during the Yalta Agreement back in 1945 that the Allied forces had really have to accept the status quo of Mongolia. In other words, basically recognize Mongolia as a sovereign entity. Because I think it's from the Tsarist times that the Russians view Mongolia as, as a potentially a backdoor to Siberia, far east of uh, Russia. And that uh, there is a quote by Stalin to this effect. Therefore, Mongolia, as many of the Mongolian scholars would tell you, is that, no, we were not part of China. We were not part of Russia. We um, basically conquered both of them during the Genghis Khan Empire. So definitely, I think for the Mongolian sovereignty had really rested on the balance uh, between Russia and China. And I think historically, ever since Mongolia has gotten its uh, sort of recognition back in 1945, and even before, there was uh, all sort of a play on the balance between the two, how to keep uh, sort of the balance. If we skew to one side, then there is definitely sort of a risk for basically getting sucked up into one of the orbits. And uh, the current situation with Russia is that Russians are also stepping up partnership with Mongolia. Uh, not only the trade had increased between the two countries, but there were uh, announcement of the uh, power of Siberia number two, the gas pipeline to go through Mongolia. Also, President Batu guy had proposed uh, to establish a North East Asia power grid during the uh, Vladivostok Economic Forum and back in, uh, uh, I think it was uh, 2018 or 2017, which entails that the um, three countries would produce power, Russia, Mongolia, and China. And three countries would uh, potentially consume that power, South Korea, Japan, and potentially North Korea, and would sort of in include North Korea into the regional economic integration. What is the thinking about China? You know, China has a lot more 
economic benefit to bring to Mongolia than Russia does. But my understanding, there's no Belt and Road project in Mongolia. There's great anxiety about being, as you pointed out, absorbed by China. But there are also, within Ulaanbaatar and within politics there and within the private sector, there are definitely people, as there are in Cambodia or Korea or even India, who want to get closer to China for economic reasons. And Mongolian politics are really, really complicated. I love politics, and I still don't understand them. And I'm probably one of the few people who tries. A simplistic version would be that the um, MPP, Mongolian People's Party that just won an election we should talk about, maybe is a little closer to Russia. And the Democratic Party, which was the opposition in the early years of democracy, maybe is a little closer to China. Is that an oversimplification? President Patulga is his own guy, but definitely close to Putin. How do the politics of China-Russia relations play out in UB? Yes, there is definitely an uneasiness about the current situation of getting uh, maybe too close to China, right? Because Mongolia is uh, 90% dependent from China because 90% of all the exports go to China. Of the 90% about... Can I, can I clarify, uh, Gambat, go to China or through China? Well, go to China. Go to China, thanks. Yeah. And 80%, approximately around 80% of this 90% uh, is mineral resources. So naturally, if we were looking from it purely from the economic perspective, purely from trade perspective, then it's great, right? Uh, Mongolia could be like Canada to US in terms of development. But I think when uh, it becomes a little more, and then it sort of, I think, uh, becomes a little bit tricky for Mongolians. And I think the uh, people are starting to fear or having concern whether Mongolia could become the next Tibet or the next Xinjiang or uh, the next Inner Mongolia, given what's going on in those regions, right? And I would say that the MPP would be maybe naturally, the Mongolian People's Party would be naturally maybe on the, on the Russian side. But over the last 20, 30 years, there was more closer relationship struck between the Mongolian People's Party with the communist legacy with the Chinese Communist Party, the inter-party relationship, which basically facilitated not only, of course, on the economic uh, terms, but also on the larger introduction of the Chinese culture into Mongolia. Confucian Institute um, have opened up in Mongolia. There were a number of also study tours going into China and even uh, the soap operas. But now uh, that relationship, I think, had started changing a little bit. Uh, there is also part of the sort of a reform group inside of MPP that also, I think, wanted to a little bit create a distance and sort of, again, seek balance uh, with Russia. I think the key word here is really the balance for uh, for Mongolia. And I think on the on the Chinese side, it's more higher assimilation risk rather than the Russian ones. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the third neighbor policy that you also had mentioned also plays in to, again, balance the two countries. And third neighbors would be the countries like uh, US, um, South Korea, Japan, the European Union. That third neighbor policy is about, what, 20 years old now? Yes. And does it have bipartisan or multipartisan support in UB? I've never heard criticism of it from within Mongolian political circles. It's logical to try to do more with Japan, mm. Korea, and the U.S. Is it a viable strategy? It's not like 
if Mongolia actually is invaded by China or Russia, it's not like Japan's going to send the self-defense forces or the U.S. is even going to be able to send in the Marines. So is it mostly about diplomacy and economics? Yeah, definitely. I think it's mostly economics. Uh, and uh, I mean, I would say that the third neighbor policy is still viable. And even though, you know, the geopolitics, I think, is sort of changing to this day, I think the third neighbor policy is viable in order for Mongolia to keep that balance. Mongolia is basically looking to industrialize and uh, is looking for Western technologies and following the Western technologies, of course, there is financing to get with it uh, through the ECAs. And with the ECA support coming into as part of the financing, of course, you know, the taxpayer money of those individual countries would basically means that would be in Mongolia. And therefore, it sort of creates that balance uh, not only between Russia and China, but also in, involving the uh, third neighbor countries. What, what does the U.S. have to have on its agenda if it's going to be a good third neighbor, if it's going to help Mongolia? Obviously, uh, as I was saying earlier, defense commitment's not very pragmatic, but what do Mongolians look to the U.S. to do to help shore up Mongolia's sovereignty in this really, really tough neighborhood? Well, I think the U.S. saying this is quite important. I think we now entering a world of uh, sort of align, creating alliances. And if for U.S. the strategic competition is with China, uh, then uh, again, sort of this puts Mongolian sort of in very peculiar place in such a way that, of course, U.S. is not going to send Marines or, or any of the troops. But in terms of supporting the only democracy right now in the region after the collapse of the uh, Berlin Wall is quite significant. Also, Mongolia had sent the troops uh, and was there when U.S. needed Mongolia. Uh, it sent troops to Afghanistan at the time. And Iraq, too. And Iraq, um, too, exactly. Uh, including troops who were in very tough combat situations and were pretty, pretty tough. I remember... I remember when uh, Mongolia offered to send troops to, to go to Iraq, the prime minister at the time told President Bush, uh, he said, you know, Mongolians know how to deal with Iraq, uh, which we thought was a reference to the sacking of Baghdad, you know, 700, 800 years ago. And, but the Mongolian soldiers were tough. For the U.S., you make a really important point. What, what's the value of Mongolia for the U.S.? Mongolia has rare earth metals. Mongolia has natural resources. Mongolia has fantastic cashmere. But so a lot of countries have natural resources and products. And what makes Mongolia stand out is what you just said, I think. It's a democracy. One friend of mine who lived in UB in Ulaanbaatar, who traveled to Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, throughout Central Asia, during an election in Mongolia said, it was really striking to go to all these other Central Asian former Soviet states, these republics, and see huge statues and posters of the leaders, period, including Russia and China, period, and then go back to Mongolia and see posters of candidates vying for office from different political parties. He said it was really striking. And so Mongolia's democracy is a national asset, and an, I, would, I would argue an international asset in the heart of a landlocked Eurasia. So it's worth talking about Mongolia's democracy. There are remarkable stories of the democratic transition of people going on hunger strikes, young students bringing democracy in the early 90s. But there are also stories of corruption, of investigations. You've, you've gotten caught up in some of these yourself because you're friends with some politicians. There's controversy about President Patuga's proposal to allow the administrative branch to fire judges. It's, it's an endless battle of not unique in Asia, yeah. <laughs> but pretty important for Mongolia, which has as one of its international brands, democracy. Yes. What, what gives you hope and what makes you worried about this struggle to, to get good democratic governance in Mongolia? 
Well, uh, when I went back uh, from New York back to Mongolia, I thought I'm sort of doing my professional work and uh, sort of, you know, I'm not touching any of the politics until I realized um, that politics was a contact sport. (laughs) So, yes, definitely. You know, Mike, it's uh, quite difficult to keep democracy, right? Even uh, after what had happened or what is going on in the United States, right? So the Chinese sort of influence had really sort of come in through the elite capture. I like the word, the term that you uh, sort of uh, coined on your podcasts. And of course, through that, it basically influences the whole society. And there were, uh, of course, you know, controversial, basically, decisions on the judges, on the appointments of judges, etc. And on one hand, I think it's not the issue of only a few judges, right? The issue is really of uh, the uh, justice in the system, right? And uh, because these judges make decisions that impact people's lives, the entire society and overall the well-being of democracy and justice. And nowadays, President Batuga also said in one of the recent parliamentarian speeches that there is such a, uh, Mongolia is basically had become the country of kleptocracy, right? You have one uh, former member of parliament who had pretty much had stolen over 100 million US dollars from the social security fund using her bank and get away with it just by paying a small fine. Whereas somebody, a just regular folk, had stolen $20 and basically in jail for three years. So cases like this, I think, had really sort of spread in the country that uh, the sense for need for justice has really been felt really strongly. And I think the decisions that has been made at the time uh, may not be absolutely correct. You're right. But it seems, as President Batulga had said, that those were the decisions as poor as they could be that uh, needed to be done at that particular time. Yeah, I think what would make a good third neighbor, the U.S., Japan, the EU, Korea, would be supporting Mongolia diplomatically, uh, training Mongolia's armed forces, which the U.S. does more than any country other than Russia. And I think in the Russian case, it's mainly because Mongolian troops have Russian kit. But the real training, the good stuff is with the U.S. But I also think a good third neighbor should ask hard questions about these issues. And not just the US, Japan, the EU. And Mongolia is important because exactly the reason you said it's a democracy in a sea of authoritarian autocracies and uh, its success matters to us. I, I want to ask about what's going on in the neighborhood in terms of what's happening to Tibetan Buddhists and to ethnic Mongolians. In, in Inner Mongolia and China, we have a crackdown now, a cultural and ethnic crackdown which, you know, maybe it's not as bad as Xinjiang, but it's pretty bad. And then you have what's happening in Tibet, which has got to trouble Mongolians who worship Tibetan in Tibetan Buddhist traditions. How is that playing among Mongolians? Is it changing attitudes towards China, for example? Is it creating a nationalism? What, what's the effect? Definitely. Let me, before I go into this, let me just a uh, little bit add on uh, onto your previous comment. Uh, I think the world needs a stronger Mongolia. The Mongolia, um, as you said, all the way back, ever since the Silk Road had started, you know, with trading from silk, teas, spices, uh, slaves, then oil. The next really uh, big thing could be, for example, in uh, in rare earth that Mongolia has got lots of it. And this is uh, increasingly could become very strategic. 
And of course, you know, for all of the mineral resources that Mongolia has got, about 60% of the periodic table uh, is in Mongolia in the world-class quantities. We've got Rio Tinto had invested in it. We need more investors like Rio Tinto to develop. And I think uh, for really the Mongolian uh, as a country uh, development with only 3 million people, just a few of those, less than probably 10 uh, such type of large uh, investments could really transform the country. And of course, all of this would not happen without the third neighbor support because there are technologies that are going into it that are backed by the export credit agencies with the financing uh, coming from uh, different countries. So therefore, I think if Mongolia is strong, then I think it's better not only for the regional, but it's also for the global stability. As for Inner Mongolia and China-Mongolia relations, President Batulga has a mature relationship with President Xi. This is demonstrated by the visit to Beijing in February 2020, when the COVID outbreak was at the highest level. Mongolia presented 30,000 sheep to the Chinese people as a gesture of solidarity and helping our neighbor in difficult times. And in response now, China is donating to Mongolia COVID testing equipment given the recent outbreak. President Batulga has a special relationship with President Putin given their judo background. And at the same time, President Batulga has built a good relationship with President Trump, evidenced by the warm welcome to the White House last year. I hope that he develops a strong relationship with President-elect Biden. He visited Mongolia, so did Jake Sullivan. And this is all about balancing. In the events um, in uh, Inner Mongolia really caused an uproar and motivated Mongolians to revive the traditional script. Recently, the president issued a decree to use it in parallel to the Cyrillic alphabet that we have now, starting from 2025. He is even teaching the Mongolian script on TV to encourage this. The Mongolian traditional script is really our cultural heritage, and one really can say it's a symbol of our sovereignty as well. And Tibet is a big, big deal for Mongolians because Chinese law says the next reincarnation Incarnation of the Dalai Lama will be determined by the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, His Holiness has said, um, no, it's going to be determined according to Tibetan traditions. But there's a possibility the next Dalai Lama could be discovered in Mongolia, which would put Ulaanbaatar right in the crosshairs of China. So it's a spiritual issue, but it's a big deal geopolitically. My sense is there's a lot of support for the Dalai Lama and for what's happening to Tibetan Buddhisms, and in the government, a little bit of nervousness about what happens with uh, reincarnation. Definitely, definitely. I think if you look at the Buddhist hierarchy, then of course it's Dalai Lama, the Panchen Lama, and Mongolian uh, Bogd Lama, right? And uh, there is a huge following. Mongolians, I think, are mostly Buddhist. If not shown, then it's pretty much basically the Buddhist lives inside, right? So definitely, I think it would, um, uh, if that happens, um, uh, saying that uh, Dalai Lama gets uh, reincarnated in Mongolia, then it's definitely going to also create a lot of issues for Mongolia. And in terms of how to deal with this, in terms of we have a secular government and it would, um, on one side, make Mongolians proud. And on the other side, it uh, would uh, become quite difficult also dealing with China as well. Mongolia is just so fascinating. It's right in the middle of the Asia chessboard. Yes. And in so many dimensions, natural resources, balance of power, democracy and values as spiritual issues. The 
trip I took last summer, the family and I went with friends out to the Orkhon Valley, which I think was like driving from Washington, D.C. to Tennessee. Yeah. But my Mongolian friends called it a short trip. <laughs> and at one point I asked the driver, why don't you take Belt and Road money? And he said this line, I will never forget. He said, Mongolians would rather have books than bridges. <laughs> and I think there's there's a lot to that. So, Gambat, thank you, Bechla. Um, hope people pay more attention to Mongolia. Um, I, I sure have enjoyed it. I know President Bush sure did when he focused on the country. And we're really lucky to have you um, help us understand it better. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me and uh, uh, giving light to Mongolia. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.